Grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Wednesday, March the 16th, in the year of our Lord 2022. I know that not all Christians celebrate Lent, right? Well, I, I guess celebrate is the wrong word. Let's say. Um, not all Christians do Lent, okay? Not all Christians recognize that there is anything uh, special or particularly important about this 40-day period. And there are different reasons for that. You know, some some folks think that Lent just seems a little dour, almost like it's, it's just a time to be sad or something. Oh, Lent, yeah, that's when uh, Christians mope around for 40 days feel bad about themselves and eat fish for some reason. No, no. Obviously, that's a caricature, right? And I I know that, that for some people, they like their Christianity to be just sort of vaguely pleasant and uplifting all the time. And I don't really agree with that, but that's okay. I acknowledge that Lent is a, a darker time of year, right? It's more uh, penitential, as we say, but this is the way that some people think. Others think that Lent is just kind of vain and ritualistic. They say, well, isn't every day supposed to be like every other day? You shouldn't set aside special days as being holy because every day is supposed to be holy. Every day you should be doing your best to be a, a good person and a good Christian. Well, yeah, I, I, I can't argue with that. There, there's logic there. You're right. I think we should be trying our best every day. That we should always be about the business of being Christian. That, that Lent isn't about being uh, more Christian for 40 days than it is the, the rest of the year, right? But if I had to defend Lent... If I had to argue for it in some way, I think I would start with the idea of health. And I want you to think about your body. Now, now you might try to be a really healthy person, right? Not me personally. I am unfortunately not that healthy. And that's something I am reckoning with this Lent, as I have done every Lent for several years. But, but you might be different. You might be healthy every day. You might try to be healthy every single day. You might follow a closed diet, uh, go for a jog, get plenty of exercise, take your vitamins, all that stuff, right? Every day. But you know, sometimes you're still supposed to go in for your checkup, right? You're still supposed to go in and sit down and let them draw your blood and stick that weird light in your ear and and press that wooden stick down on the back of your tongue even if you're trying to be healthy every day there is that time when you have to go and present yourself to the physician and give him or her a chance just to to look over you, to check your levels, your reflexes, and make sure everything's working all right. 
That's how they say you're supposed to take care of your body. But souls... Now, souls are more complicated than that, right? Souls are more mysterious than that. You can't just uh, take a swab and, and run a couple tests and put a stethoscope up next to your soul to confirm that everything is functioning as it should, right? No, a soul is deeper than that. It's deeper in some ways than even, even than your own heart is. It's deeper than the cholesterol in your blood. Our souls touch every part of our lives, our, our relationships, our social interactions, even the, the private little thoughts that happen in the, the lockboxes of our minds. And it's that, that universality, that depth and expansiveness of the soul that means that spiritual health is perhaps a bit more complicated to manage even than bodily health. Think of it this way. Through 200 years or so, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but, but over the last few centuries, when folks have been practicing what we would call modern uh, clinical medicine, we've come to a place where uh, for most folks, a complete physical uh, takes a, a couple hours, right? If you've ever gone in for a, a full workup, it, it takes two, maybe three hours, and then even a few more days for the blood tests to, to make their way through the lab, right? So that's, that's the time frame for that. But over 2,000 years of Christianity, it's 2,000 years of prayer and life and experience and tradition and walking with the Holy Spirit. Over 20 centuries, the Christian world has figured out that to do a, a complete checkup of the soul, to do it right anyway, takes about 40 days. And as part of that, you gotta fast a little bit. Just like you might before a blood draw, you gotta cleanse uh, the system of pollutants. And then you gotta go in and you gotta have your little conference, right? You gotta spend time telling the physician what you think is going on with you. Uh, trying to articulate uh, your symptoms, right? You gotta have that conversation. And then, this is the part that most people don't get, then you gotta let the doctor ask you some questions, right? The doctor is going to have questions of her own based on what you've said. And you got to put yourself out there to answer them. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever just sat in silence to let God ask you the questions? 
It's not how we like to think about God. We like to think about God as this omniscient uh, lawgiver, you know, the one who just sort of tells it like it is all the time. We think of God speaking all the time. But I actually think God's bedside manner is better than that. I think sometimes God just wants us uh, to sit and to have a conversation. I think God wants to ask us questions about our life sometimes. That God wants to help us be able to scrutinize ourselves within reason. God wants us to learn how to take stock of our own spiritual right. And to do that rightly requires a bit of persistence, I think. Maybe about... Uh, 40 days worth or so. So wherever you are on your Lenten journey, I want to warn you against thinking of Lent as nothing more than 40 days of self-denial. As if it were some kind of marathon of fasting. See how long you can go without uh, coffee or bacon or whatever it is. Instead, even if you are fasting from something, I want you to think of Lent as a conversation with your doctor, your great physician, as they say. You know what? I, I get frustrated whenever I go to the doctor's office because it doesn't seem like I get much time with my doctor, right? You've probably had that same experience, but... But here, during Lent, you can take all the time you need. And you're invited to take time. To take time from your work. To take time from uh, your responsibilities. To take time from uh, your leisure. Even time from the chronological wasteland that is the hours that you spend looking at the internet, you are invited to take back some of your time so that you can have uh, the undivided attention of your doctor and so that your doctor can have your undivided attention as well. And there, in the midst of that conversation, you have all the space you need to talk through every ache and pain, every joy and excitement, every confusion or sorrow, any symptom that comes to mind. You have the opportunity to explain it, to investigate it, um, to look into it with the help of someone who only wants your healing. So if your Lenten fast isn't going particularly well this year, don't worry. You can pick it up again, right? Or you can change it, or you can do whatever you need to do. Call an audible, I don't care. God appreciates the effort you've made thus far. And if you haven't made an effort, then God will appreciate all the more your effort today tomorrow. The main thing is that you are invited 
between now and Easter to take some of your time and spend it talking to God, asking any question you want. And I bet if you're quiet enough, you'll find that God will even ask you some questions too. Now, whether any of those questions have good answers or not, uh, your good doctor is willing to take all the time you need. And that, my friends, is an amazing grace. Hope you stick around. We got a good Lenten sermon for you today. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. <clears throat> At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather you as children, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wish to preach to you this morning from the title, Coming Home to Roost. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I was in the waiting room at St. Thomas Hospital. This is several years ago before COVID. And I was waiting for one of my parishioners to come out of surgery, just uh, sitting there in one of the chairs, reading my book, when all of a sudden I got splashed with water. And I'm like, where, what? Where could that have possibly come from when I realized that there was a little girl who was giggling behind me. And she was pointing to a fish tank. If you've ever been in St. Thomas, 
They have fish tanks in the waiting room. And one of her toys was floating on top of the water. So I grinned at her mischievously and I said, Hey, what did you do? And she took off running and laughing, uh, jumping all around the waiting room. Her mother, however, was not so pleased. Serenity, she yelled. Get back here, settle down. But Serenity just kept right on running circles around that waiting room, crawling under the tables and chairs, crawling through my legs, laughing the whole time, and her mother chasing her around and around, just screaming, Serenity! Serenity! And all I could think was, wow, that girl is never going to understand what her name means. <laughs> Jerusalem literally means city of peace. But that doesn't even quite capture it. Literally, uh, the word Jeru means not just city, but it means foundation or source. And shalom only comes to mean peace through the word shalom. The, the original word shalom is actually a far more ancient word. It's the word for dusk. That magical hour of cool temperatures and dwindling orange light as the sun sets over the desert, leaving everyone with a sense of tranquility and rest. In its most ancient form, then, Jerusalem can be literally translated as the source of peace, the source of serenity. But if you know anything about Jerusalem, you know that name does not match its reality. Not only is it a current hotbed of religious and cultural violence and resentment, but it has literally always been that. Whether you're talking about the Christian crusaders massacring the Jews and the Muslims of the Middle Ages, or the, the Six Days War, or the suicide bombers, or even the time Antiochus Epiphanes conquered the city on behalf of the Seleucid Greeks and sacrificed a pig on the altar of the Jewish temple, Jerusalem has been a city of peace in name only. In fact, during its 5,000-year history, the city has been attacked 52 times, captured 44 times, besieged 23, and utterly destroyed twice. Not only that, but the religious animosity and distrust Bread between Christians, Jews, and Muslims has spilled out of the city itself. And now it's inarguable to say that it hasn't 
stretched across the entire world. Terrorism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all of it can be traced back in some way to the struggle for that particular city and all of the profound culture of spirituality it represents. Even when I was there in the so-called Holy Land, I had to pass through various military checkpoints. A bombing took place just a few blocks from my room in Bethlehem. I saw the barren fields near the Jordan River that are utterly desolate because they're filled with landmines. All of it from the so-called source of serenity, what the Jews used to call the navel of the earth. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You get the sense that, that Jesus is almost chasing after Jerusalem in this scene, calling after it, trying to teach it the meaning of its own name. Just like we would know Akron as the rubber city, right? Or the birthplace of LeBron James, or the childhood home of Vicar Derek Kabilis. It was almost universal to know that Jerusalem was the city that killed the prophets. In Jeremiah 26, we learn about King Jehoiakim killing the prophet Uriah. In 2 Chronicles 24, there's a conspiracy that results in the murder of the prophet Zechariah. And of course, in 2 Kings, the corrupt king Manasseh kills his own citizens until he had, quote, filled Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood, including, Jewish tradition tells us, the prophet Isaiah, his own grandfather, who he ordered to be sawed in half in the very center of the city. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, no joke. By the way, I, I hope you get the sense that not all Pharisees are bad guys, right? Uh, some of them are actually on Jesus' side. This, these are very concerned and open-hearted Pharisees that are trying to warn Jesus not to go to Jerusalem as if he doesn't already know what he's getting himself into. He's read the stories. He's heard the legends. Every prophet who entered that city set himself against the chief priests in the temple and got slaughtered just like the lambs on their altar. So he says, go and tell that fox. And by the way, he doesn't mean that in a George Clooney, Harrison Ford kind of way, right? Um, he, by fox, he means that Herod is crafty and predatory like a fox in the hen house. Go and tell that fox 
that I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. In other words, he's saying, look, i got a little business I'm taking care of right now, but I'm going to see you soon enough. Why? Because, Jesus says, it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Did you catch that? He knows what's waiting for him. He knows full well what's going to happen there, and he's going anyway. He knows Jerusalem ain't as holy as they say it is. He knows that the streets are stained with blood, that the temple priests aren't going to abide a true prophet getting in the way of their status quo. He knows that the raw machinery of the Jerusalem industrial complex can't make room for his gospel of love, yet he goes there anyway. He walks into it of his own free will. Let me tell you something. All that stuff about Jerusalem, a lot of folks say that exact same stuff except about the church. Friends, folks in the outside world see church in much the same way that that Jesus saw Jerusalem not as a place of peace and serenity, but as a fallen institution, a cultural artifact, an organization that may claim to preach peace and love. But they know that too often the church stands for exclusion and violence. Look at the way the church is cozied up to party politics and Christian nationalism. Look at Patriarch Kirill over there in Russia, blessing nuclear weapons with holy water, calling the invasion of a sovereign nation a holy struggle. Look at the way we Christians in this country drug our feet on ending slavery. The way so many Christian churches opposed civil rights back in the 50s and 60s. Look at the way our churches are still the most segregated institution in the world on Sunday mornings. And the way we're still doing immeasurable harm to gay folks and trans folks. Judging folks that we don't know and we don't understand. Look at the scandals of church abuse. Women and children being hurt in, in, in the Catholic Church, in the Baptist Church, even in our own United Methodist congregations. All too often, these things get covered up and shoved under the altar. So that Christians can persist in a false shalom, a false peace, built not on justice, but on preserving the status quo. So when the folks outside are told, hey, maybe you ought to not go in there, they say, yeah, you're probably right. And I talk to these folks all the time. They say, oh, I'm cool with God, they say, but institutional religion? No thanks. I got, I got a better way to spend my time. 
And here we are grasping after them, crying out, United Methodist, United Methodist, the church that kills the prophets and stones those who are coming to it. How long have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Do you know why chickens brood over their chicks? Why they spread out their wings to cover them up? They only do it when they perceive some kind of a threat. Perhaps they see a shadow of a hawk or a falcon moving across the ground, or maybe, as in the case in this scripture, they see a fuzzy little foxtail poking up outside of a bush somewhere. They make this particular clucking sound that their chicks just sort of instinctively know, and they come running right up next to their mom, and she covers them completely with her wings. Knowing, that if the hawk dives or if the fox jumps out of the bush and attacks, it'll get her instead. It might tear a hole in her wing or gouge out her eye or even drag her away for its next meal. But no matter what happens, that mother hen knows that at least the chicks will be safe. If it's cold, a mother hen will even pluck out her own feathers from her own chest, exposing her bare skin so that her body heat will transfer down to her baby chicks. When Jesus says he loves the children of Jerusalem like a brooding hen, he means that he will cover them with his own sacrifice. That he will put himself over them for them, that he will brood over them with his own flesh and blood and allow himself, if need be, to be torn apart by the fox. All so that they can escape and be free. The next line is easily misinterpreted. He says, see, your house is left to you. Some scholars make it out like he's saying, well, you can have it your way then, whatever. But that's not it at all. What he's saying is he's saying, see, your coop is going to belong to you again. Because I'm going to take the hit. The fox is going to attack me and not you. And you can now have this house to yourself. And after all the blood is cleaned up and the feathers have blown away, one day you will see me coming again. And you will say, that hen, blessed is that hen, the prophet that comes in the name of the Lord. Well, let me tell you, this is a tough time to be a preacher. It's a tough time to be the leader of any kind of old-timey institution. 
Because with, with all this technology and education and all these things, modern folks are starting to realize just how badly they've been hurt by institutions over the years. And just recently, they're starting to figure out that it's been decades, even centuries of rot at the heart of all of our major cultural, religious, and political institutions that used to give our lives, we thought, so much worth and meaning. And the thing is, they're not wrong. Churches, companies, governments, schools, institutions of all kinds have been hurting folks for so long with almost no accountability, and I don't blame most people for not wanting to be a part of them anymore. But then that still leaves us, doesn't it? The faithful remnant, feeling like everyone else has just flown the coop. But here's the thing. We can't be defensive about that, okay? We can't be fighting and clawing to try to get back to the all-holy way things used to be because truth be told, things weren't all that holy back then. Sure, they may have been holy for us and that's why we're still here, but there are other folks who were hurt by the institution back in those days. And it's our job to listen, to, to empath empathize, to, to, to hear their stories and see their, their tears not to defend, not to argue, not to fight. It's our job to listen patiently to all the ways that we may have failed them. Some people say that we are living in a time when institutions everywhere are failing. I actually don't agree with that. The truth is institutions rarely fail outright. Even the Roman Empire, you were probably told that Rome uh, fell around the 400s to the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. That's not even close to being true. In, in the east, in Turkey, Rome lived on for another thousand years, making almost no memorable history, just listing through the centuries, driven only by its institutional bloat and its mediocrity, the pain of institutions comes not from when they fall, but from when they don't. And they simply languish for years and decades and centuries. But thanks be to God. Because Jesus didn't come to save an institution. Amen? He didn't come to save an, an outward organization, a, a structure, a, a, a building. He didn't come to save any of those things. He came to save a people. He came to save us. He came to bring peace into our lives and joy into our hearts. And that is the tradition, that tradition 
of patient love and faithfulness. It need not be mediated by any institution or outside structure. Oh, that helps when everything's running smooth. Don't get me wrong. But it certainly is not necessary. Institutions come and go. They grow and they decline. And they decline. And they decline. The coops rust and rot. And the foxes lie at the gates. But Mama Hen always comes back to her brood. Mama Hen always comes back for her young to spread her wings over us and, and give us what we need. And, and now I'm thinking about the, the ancient icon of Christ is the pelican. Have you ever seen that? The, these old pictures that, that are meant to be Jesus sitting in a nest as a pelican with his chicks and he plucks out his own feathers and, and gnaws and nips at the skin of his chest to feed his young with his own blood. That's what a mother hen does. Not merely so that their children will survive, but so that they will one day lay eggs of their own. Now, I know some of y'all are a bit long in the tooth to be talking about laying eggs the good old-fashioned way. But you can still lay eggs of love. You can still lay eggs of joy and generosity and hope and reconciliation in every heart you come across. You can build another nest. And when those eggs hatch into to children and to friends and relationships with folks you don't even know, when those eggs hatch, you brood over them. You sacrifice for them like your mama hen sacrificed for you. You take the hit for those under your care. Because that's the tradition we're trying to save. You know, in the coming years, I have no idea what will happen to this institution, this coop we call the United Methodist Church, or for that matter, even Uniontown United Methodist Church, because we got foxes in the world, do we not? And we've got foxes and coyotes and vultures always out in the bushes and up in the trees trying to figure out what they can get for themselves. Be honest, I have no idea if this coop will stand or if it will fall. But what I do know is that we don't need a coop anyway. Coops are made by man, and they can be destroyed by the corruption of men. But God gave us these wings. These wings called love, patience, and sacrifice. 
And whenever we stretch them out wide, just like our mama hen up on the cross, whenever we stretch out our wings, we make a home. Right then and right there, we make a nest, a new source of serenity, a new Jerusalem, where one day the whole world will come to roost. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, do not become too attached to the institutions that you think you serve and that you think serve you. I'm talking about buildings, organizations, systems, governments, all those human constructions that promise to offer peace and serenity if only you abide by their organization, if only you abide by their bureaucracy, their technology, whatever it is. Don't be taken in by that. True peace comes from Christ alone. Be attached to him and be attached to the ones that he puts in your path. Whenever you can, spread your wings wide and offer some cover to those that are threatened. And now may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you, now and always. Amen.